Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, where we equip men and women to be faithful in every aspect of life. This week, you will hear Douglas Wilson's sort of biographical sketch of John Calvin, because now, in the Christian Heritage series, we have published John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. If you don't know, John Calvin wrote the Institutes of the Christian Religion, and he did so in four books. A lot of translations will have those two books in two volumes, but we have decided to do four volumes. So each book gets its own volume, and with the rest of the series, each book will have an introduction from someone who knows and loves the material. When you get our copy, you should have a beautiful new cover an introduction from someone who knows the material well, and then lays throughout questions and answers written by Pastor Wilson himself. Go get that at canonpress.com. Let's thank the Lord. Father, we thank you for our time together tonight. Please watch over us as we uh, think through this material. I pray you'd bless us and keep us, guide us. We pray that we would... uh, Learn from history and not simply observe it from a distance. And we pray that you would do this for Jesus' sake. And amen. Amen. Well, um, in the debate that I had with Dan Barker a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, in the course of the debate, he raised the question of what did I think of John Calvin. And and he uh, made the point, not too subtly, that anybody who thinks that John Calvin was a good man is a morally bankrupt person. So if, if, you, if you approve of John Calvin or, or are willing to say that he's a good man, then you're morally bankrupt. And I said, uh, in, the, in the course of the debate, I said, well, I think John Calvin was a good man, but not a perfect man. Um, but I do think he's a good man, and, and, and three cheers for Calvinism. And, and, but that's about the extent of my reply. And he was referring, among other things, to the uh, execution of Michael Servetus. Um, and... Uh, I didn't want to spend 45 minutes of that debate explaining why the execution of Michael Servetus was um, had to be understood in context and so on and so forth, because it would simply look like I was excusing a sin, and I didn't didn't want to do that. So I wanted to say John Calvin was a good man, but not a perfect man, um, and not get into it there because we had, we had other things to talk about. At the same time, it's a reasonable question. Uh, the, the, the whole question of what happened with Michael Servetus is a reasonable question. And I think that we need to work through it. We need to talk about it and, and acquaint ourselves with the facts and so on. And so that's what we're doing here tonight. And I hope uh, not only to um, help you understand what the context of uh, Geneva was in the 16th century, but also to leave um, uh, some time for questions and some points of application. One of the things that is, uh, there, there, are, there will be several things that I want to say at the outset. The first is that um, defending John Calvin or explaining John Calvin's life as in its entirety does not necessitate uh, defending, an, uh, defending the indefensible. So if something happens, that if John Calvin did something he shouldn't have done or the, or the Geneva City Council uh, did something they shouldn't have done, we ought not we ought not to defend it simply for the sake of partisan politics. We can't say, well, um, the, he's our guy, and so we're going we're gonna to whitewash his sins, and, and, and we're going to amplify the sins of the people on the other team. That's dishonest, and we ought, ought not to do it. So whatever, uh, whatever um, 
the, shakes out when we examine the history of the period dispassionately, whatever shakes out, we should be willing to um, say, yeah, that's true. That's, that's what happened, and this is how we should think of it. Approaching history with a Christian worldview doesn't mean that you approach history in a way that um, just excuses, you know, sort of um, hooray for our side and, and, um, and contempt is heaped on the other side. Uh, that said, um, in 1903, some uh, a collection of reformed people with the right instincts, I, uh, um, with the right instincts, I want to develop this a, a little bit further uh, later, but the, with the right instincts, um, put up an expiatory monument um, to Michael Servetus in Geneva. So these are reformed people, heirs of John Calvin, saying here's a monument to Michael Servetus saying this shouldn't have happened and um, it doesn't make expiation the way Christ's death makes expiation, but it's a, sort of a, a standing memorial, standing, um, a standing act of restitution. I think the instinct was right, but even though the instinct is right, I still want to tell more of the story. It wasn't as simple as everybody wants to make it out to be. Um, here, was the, here was the situation, the, the, broad, the broad situation. John Calvin was, uh, the, the popular conception of Calvin and Geneva is that John Calvin, having one of these long beards and being a religious guy, had to have been an Ayatollah. And Ayatollahs come in and take over and they're tyrannical dictators and they tell everybody what to do and they sort of run the show uh, and they rule with an iron fist. Well, Calvin was not in that position at all. He was not even a citizen of Geneva. He was French. He was a refugee. He had to flee um, uh, the, uh, a wave of persecution against the Huguenots um, that the King of France instituted. So he had to flee. And when he was on the road, um, look, he was a scholar. He was a he was a he was a he was a, a brain with feet. He had a fifty-pound head. Um, he, he was just really a remarkable man. He was one of the one of the best prose stylists in French ever. Um, he was just an incredible man, an incredible scholar, and by his own profession, a timid kind of person in, in his natural um, in his natural bearing and so forth. He was not he was not like John Knox, for example, was who uh, was built for battle. Uh, Calvin was not built for battle. He was just a little. He hardly had a body at all. He was just a little stick, and um, he ate, he ate one meal a day. He was just very um, very austere in his personal uh, habits and, and l wanted a life of retirement with his books. And he was fleeing the, fleeing the persecution of the, uh, of the king of France and he stopped in uh, Geneva for the night and he was going to be heading on. And uh, one of the early reformers in Geneva, a man named uh, Guillaume or w William Farrell, uh, heard that Calvin was... Uh, heard that Calvin was in town, so he hustled over there, and, and basically Farrell was not a uh, subtle man, and Farrell just sort of read the riot act to Calvin. If you, don't stay, if you don't stay here and advance the Reformation in Geneva, then God will strike you down. Um, you know, <laughs> so Farrell just sort of thundered at Calvin and scared Calvin to death, and so Calvin stayed in Geneva. 
and they began working on, on the work of Reformation there in Geneva. And um, in 1538, Calvin was banished from Geneva. All right, I'm not going to go into all the details, but Calvin be- began the work of Reformation. He was banished, kicked out of the city, and went to Strasbourg. And he, he worked there uh, uh, with uh, a congregation in comparative peace. Geneva was tumultuous, and Strasbourg was very, Strasbourg was very um, peace, uh, it was a peaceful time for Calvin. He, uh, he was very, um, uh, I guess, comforted um, in Strasbourg, had a, had a very good time, very good experience. And he was, uh, after a few years away, um, the situation in Geneva had changed, and he was asked to come back to, to renew the work of Reformation, which he did. Um, and so he, but he didn't want to go. He didn't want to be in Geneva. And what happened was, because he was such a, a brilliant man, there, there were two, two things that happened after he returned to Geneva. Because he was such a brilliant man, and he, a great stylist and a great writer and a great thinker and, and a great preacher, um, he began to ga- gain an international reputation. And persecution was breaking out in different places. So, for example, Bloody Mary in England was persecuting the Protestants, and a number of a number of English-speaking Protestants came to Geneva. John Knox was one of them. Miles Coverdale was another. John Fox, who wrote Fox's Book of Martyrs, was a, uh, another one. And they were in the English-speaking congregation in Geneva, uh, the, and and learned what was going on there and took it back. John Knox took it back to Scotland and so on. Uh, and, but people were coming from all over Europe to visit Geneva and um, see what was happening and then take it back. In France, uh, because of the crackdown on the Huguenots, on the Protestants, many French refugees came to Geneva, which was in Switzerland, and they stayed. Now, this was the, this was the second half of uh, what happened. Calvin's international reputation, he was, just a, he was just simply a great man. Karl Barth called him a primeval forest. He said, uh, John Calvin's a primeval forest. There's just no, uh, it, it's just, a, he's an amazing man. So his reputation was, he was not just a little um, tin pot autocratic guy. He, he was, had a, just a, a brilliant vision of what, um, of what the scriptures taught and what, um, what Europe ought to do and that sort of thing. And so his reputation was compelling. He was a dazzling figure. C.S. Lewis, in, um, in his uh, book, English, Lit- English Literature in the 16th Century, um, in the first chapter or two, talks about the huge impact that Calvin had on humanist letters in England. And uh, then he had this impact on Scotland, and he had this huge impact on France. Well, the French... Um, the French began coming to Geneva, and the uh, merchants and, and uh, Protestant, uh, Protestant Huguenots came to Geneva, and many of them took up residence there and became citizens over time and acquired the right to vote, which was a whole lot more difficult in those days. In Sw- uh, you know, if you went to uh, Switzerland, went to Geneva in Switzerland, and you were French, it, you couldn't just go down to the the county courthouse and show them your driver's license and be able to vote the next day. Uh, it wasn't like that. It took some you know, months and years to have this happen, but it began to happen. And so all these 
Huguenots, who were Frenchmen, together with Calvin, began to influence Geneva. All right? Now, uh, the, the, the Psalm 6 that we sang just a minute ago, you notice that the uh, date on it is 15, 1542. It's from the Genevan Psalter. And it was, uh, that was a tune that they were singing in Geneva. Um, in 11 years, uh, Michael Servetus was burned at the stake in 1553. And so this is out of the Genevan Psalter just a few years after Calvin's exile. And, uh, uh, and I think he had returned by that. So, uh, Geneva is this happening place because of the figure of Calvin, and the, pr the presence of the French began to, began to push Genevan politics in Calvin's direction. But this is the crucial thing. There were a bunch of people there, uh, native Genevans, who were pushing back at the same time. Well, um, what, is, what does that mean? Well, there were there are some different. Here's some uh, characters that you should know about. There was one fellow in the 1530s, uh, Caroli, who ha was kind of an erratic, uh, kind of an erratic guy. He bounced back and forth between the Roman Catholic Church and the Reformation. He 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 ended his life a Roman Catholic, but for a time he was a Protestant. And while he was a Protestant, he ac he accused Calvin of. Um, embracing Trinitarian heresies, right? And Caroli was a credible enough figure that the accusation was taken seriously. The accusation was taken seriously, and um, Calvin answered the accusation, was able to show from his writings and stuff that he, he didn't die, deny the Trinity at all. But Caroli had accused him of being an Arian, uh, denying the deity of Jesus Christ. And that, that is part of the backdrop. Servetus was executed, among other things, for Trinitarian heresies. And Calvin had been himself accused of being a Trinitarian heretic sometime before. Secondly, when you, um, when Cal when Servetus, uh, well, Cer uh, let me tell you about Servetus. Servetus, uh, so the second, the first figure is Caroli, who, who accused um, Calvin of Trinitarian heresy. Servetus really was a uh, a heretic when it came to the doctrine of the Trinity. He was a, a, an impetuous physician. A, a, uh, as many geniuses are, he was, he was a genius. As many geniuses are, he was very erratic um, and impetuous and a provocateur. He would, he would just make trouble wherever um, he went. Not by going out in the street and making trouble every day, but by publishing his opinions and that sort of thing. He, w he was a genius. He was a physician. He, um, half a century before Harvey, uh, figured out um, the circulation of the blood. Ser Servetus was, he, he was not just a, a, a rank-and-file wingnut. He, was a, he had a lot of intellectual horsepower, but he was erratic and a provocateur. He was uh, he he traveled around and was in trouble in different places, and there was a, a Protestant in Geneva uh, who was corresponding with his cousin. This Protestant in Geneva was corresponding with his cousin, who was a Roman Catholic, and it, the Roman Catholic cousin said to the Protestant cousin, uh, "Well, you guys are a bunch of heretics," and um, and the Protestant cousin who knew that Calvin in Geneva was corresponding with Servetus, 
they they had a correspondence because Servetus had sent him sent Calvin a copy of his manuscript, and Calvin had sent him a copy of Institutes of the Christian Religion, um, and Servetus had scribbled in all the margins and sent it back with rude comments, and they were having this kind of correspondence. Um, and so the Protestant cousin said something like, "Yeah, well, you ought to know. Um, uh, you Roman Catholics have this." Trinitarian heretic living in your midst and you're not doing anything about it and so that letter got shown to the authorities an inquiry was made um, material was sent from Geneva to the Roman Catholic authorities Servetus was arrested by the Roman Catholics and was tried and condemned Servetus uh, had some friends who helped him escape from prison so he escaped, and the Roman Catholics uh, convicted him of heresy and burned him in effigy. All right, so the Roman Catholics burned him in effigy. Servetus came to uh, Geneva, and it's not clear if he was coming there to make trouble or if he was just passing through. Well, Calvin recognized him. Uh, Servetus popped into a church service to hear Calvin preach. Calvin recognized him and reported him, and he was arrested. Now, here's the weird thing. This is the, this is the thing that a lot of people don't get. They don't understand. Geneva was governed by two councils. There was the Council of the 200, which was more like a House of Representatives, and there was what was called the Little Council, the Small Council, which had 25 members um, on the Small Council. Servetus was tried by the Small Council. So Servetus is tried by the Little Council. Now, the Little Council was filled with Calvin's enemies. Okay, the people who were trying to run Calvin out of town the second time. Right, he'd been run out of town in 1538. Now it's 1553. The small council is the 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 entity before whom Servetus comes, and Calvin's on the outs with the small council. Right, there that council's packed with his enemies. Um, part of the reason um, for this is there was a. Um, uh, the, the political party that was heavily represented on the small council, was they were called the Perennists, after a family name, per, uh, Ami Peren. And one member of that family was a guy named uh, Berthelier. And Berthelier had been excommunicated by Calvin uh, for notorious licentious living. Right? The, the, Peren, the Peren family was kind of a dissolute uh, libertine family. And the, but they were part of the upper echelon of Genevan society. And they were heavily represented on the small council. And so Calvin had excommunicated one of the leading figures of Geneva because Calvin would not abide with a double standard where you hammer, uh, you hammer the, uh, the peons and you let the rich folks go. Calvin said, no, there's one standard for everybody. And so he had excommunicated one of these guys on the small council. At the same time, and this is the ironic thing, given, given the debate that, that we were having with Dan Barker, uh, that I was having with Dan Barker the other night, is Calvin, at this very moment, was fighting for, with the council, he was fighting for the separation of church and state. Okay? Uh, the little council was the state. Uh, so the, the, church gov- the civil government in Geneva was the council of the 200 and the little council. And the little council met at City Hall Monday, Tuesdays, and, Mondays, Tuesdays, and Fridays. And they were just a small oligarchy that sort of ran the show. 
And then the consistory was the government of the church, the ministers of Geneva. There were three main parish churches in Geneva. Well, the consistory, Calvin at this very time was battling with the civil authorities for separation of church and state. Because up to this time, the little council controlled excommunications. So what we take for granted today, for example, let's say someone in one of our churches um, you know, runs off with somebody else's wife and won't repent and, and, they, and we appeal to them when we go through the process of Matthew 18 and they, and they still won't repent. And so we excommunicate them. We take that as the right of the church. We, we just take that as a prerogative of the church for granted. But in Geneva, it would be as though someone did that in our church and... When we excommunicated someone for deserting his wife, that decision would then have to go to the Moscow City Council. Okay? And they would have to approve it. Well, Calvin was fighting to, to, to detach the government of the church from the, government of the, from the civil government. And that was a battle in progress in the middle of Servetus' trial. So, here's the irony. What Dan Barker was arguing, we ought to separate church and state... Um, and he brings up Servetus. In the middle of Servetus' trial, that's exactly the battle that was going on. And Calvin had excommunicated one of the city council members. Well, so then Servetus shows up. And this is uh, uh, George Grant's wife once said that bright lights, bright lights attract big bugs. And that, that's what you had here in Geneva. There was a bright light, a lot going on, and all sorts of people began to show up. So in the middle of this tension between the little, the little council and uh, the consistory, over the right to excommunicate, which government has the right to, to bar someone from the table, the council or the consistory, the, the ministers? In the middle of this, Servetus shows up. Okay, Now, Servetus was, uh, was considered... Uh, this is kind of a, um, an interesting fact. I think I alluded to this at the debate. Um, although I believe the execution of... Servetus to have been a sin and a blunder, um, b- both a sin and a blunder, and I'll explain that uh, in a little bit. It's important for us to realize what kind of sin it was and what kind of blunder it was and what the climate in Europe was at the time. I already mentioned that the Roman Catholics had condemned him and burned him in effigy. Um, before the Geneva City Council executed Servetus in October of 1553, before they did that, they sent letters to a number of neighboring Protestant uh, cities and asked for, your, what is your judgment? You know, and every, they sent uh, inquiries like to five different cities. All of them said uh, Servetus uh, should die. When Servetus was executed, um, it was, um, in a perverse kind of way, a brief, shining, ecumenical moment all over Europe. Uh, even the mild-mannered Melanchthon, uh, uh, a Lutheran scholar, very mild, a- approved of it. Bootser approved of it. Uh, you know, every, everybody thought that this was um, that Europe had finally gotten rid of a, of a major pest. Well, I mention that not because that makes it right, right? It, it, but to tell you to show you what the pressures were on the little council. See, here's the problem: Servita shows up. Calvin recognizes him, reports him, and Servetus comes on trial before the little council. So this is not an ayatollah saying to the um, to his puppet counselors, "Do my bidding, execute that man." 
it was a lot dicier than that. What happened was Servetus was on trial before a group of people that hated Calvin. Okay? Now, they, they were in a dicey position because if, they, if the little council was lenient to Servetus, then they would look... Remember what I said about the climate of Europe all over? Uh, then they would look like they were that they, the little council, were harboring heretics. They would be the bad guy if they were lenient uh, on him. But if they were hard, and, and, and so if they were lenient with him, they would um, uh, they would they would be hammered by the popular opinion all over Europe. If they were hard on and uh, if they were hard on him, they would help Calvin locally. If they were lenient on him, they would hurt Calvin locally. Right? Does that make sense? They wanted to hurt Calvin locally, but they didn't want to get a black eye um, across Europe. So, this is, the, this is the situation. This is the trial. Calvin, Calvin was not the judge. He was not the prosecutor. He, was not, you know, he simply reported that Servetus is here. He was arrested. And Calvin served in the trial as an expert witness, as a theological witness. And was part of the cross-examination, but he was, he was not dictating to the council what they should do. In fact, uh, when, when Servetus was condemned, much to his astonishment, he behaved with great um, insolence in the course of the trial. At one point, Servetus demanded that Calvin be arrested and executed and all Calvin's property turned over to Servetus. That's what, so he, tried to, to, he tried, to, uh, tried to turn the tables. But when he was condemned, he was... Uh, astonished, and and in a personal visit with Calvin, asked if Calvin could arrange to have him executed with a sword and not by burning, um, because he was afraid that he would, uh, not because he wanted to recant his opinions, but because he was afraid that in a painful death he might recant his opinions, and he would rather die painlessly and and not under torture, basically. And Calvin tried to. Uh, fulfill that wish of Servetus's. Servetus asked, could I be executed by the sword and not by fire? Uh, Calvin made the request on Servetus's behalf to the little council, which the little council denied. The little council said, no, we're going to do, do it this way. Well, in the middle, uh, so in the middle of this trial, so you've got this major circus going on, and in the middle of this trial, remember Berthelier, he's the excommunicated guy, he does an end-run move and got the little council to rescind the sentence of excommunication against Bethelier, one of the council members, which was a throwdown to Calvin. So it's not nothing to do with Servetus, but it's in the middle of the trial. And, um, and Bethelier was a um, lax liver, notorious lax uh, liver, and Calvin said he would not defile the Lord's Supper by giving... Um, giving the Lord's Supper to someone who was so notori- notoriously licentious. But this, the little council said, well, you got to do it. You know, so the little council in the middle of the trial um, slammed shut the, 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 the separation of church and state that was beginning to happen at Calvin's insistence was suddenly slammed shut by the um, little council. And Calvin um, refused. He said, I will not serve the Lord's Supper to... So the gauntlet was, gauntlet was thrown, thrown down. And the following Sunday, which was uh, Communion Sunday, um, Calvin preached what he thought was a farewell sermon because Calvin was sure he was going to get kicked out of Geneva again. 
right? He, so he, he was positive he was going to be pitched out. So he preached a farewell sermon, and it came time for the Lord's Supper, and, he, and a bunch of people had shown up because they, they were sure there was going to be a showdown. And, um, but Calvin showed iron will. The council wavered. They'd made their legal decision that Berthelier could come to the Lord's Supper, but some of them had apparently advised Berthelier, you, be, you better not show up. You have every legal right to show up, but you better not show up, right? So he was a no-show, and Calvin won, right? So they they made this, they removed the sentence technically, and Calvin sort of persevered and and won that. But he he had every reason to believe that he was going to be run out of Geneva. So it is, it is not the case that Servetus wandered into this. Um, tyrannical um, sort of place that Calvin controlled the way Joseph Stalin con- controlled the Soviet Union. And Calvin said, uh, somebody arrest that man and, and, and burn him. And everybody hopped right to. Uh, Calvin was in, um, uh, in a very dicey position himself, personally. In the years that followed, um, as the influence of the French grew in um, in Geneva, what happened? It, it wasn't until it wasn't until some years later that um, Calvin that, that the the city council was filled up with Calvin's friends. Right up to this point, Calvin was dealing with an adversarial council, people hostile to him, and trying to separate church and state. Years after the Servetus trial, he was. Um, um, he had a friendly council, and and he ended his um, years in Geneva in comparative peace, as opposed to the turbulent early years. But it's simply it's simply false to say that Calvin had control over the city council. At the same time, he approved he approved of of the execution of Servetus. He says this in his correspondence. He says, "I approved of it. I tried to get the method of execution." Uh, Altered. He didn't approve of cruelty in executions, which is what a uh, you know when the Roman Catholics uh, uh, condemned Servetus, they condemned him to death over a slow fire. Um, so uh, oftentimes the the point was to uh, to kill the person as slowly as possible. And Calvin disapproved of that sort of thing. Now, let me. Uh, Make one other observation. That's a, a weird. Let me mention two other names real quickly, and then make this um, other observation. Two other names that you, sh- you should be familiar with would be a guy named Bolsec and another guy named Castilio. Bolsec attacked Calvin on the doctrine of predestination. Uh, Calvin um, uh, uh, Calvin taught, as Calvinists are wont to do, that that God is sovereign over everything and this sovereignty over everything includes his sovereignty over who is elect, who is elect to heaven and who is um, uh, going to be consigned to hell. And so this determination has been made according in the sovereign decrees of God before the world was ever created. Okay, So that um, uh, this doctrine has been winning friends and influencing people for many years. Um, it, I would want to argue that it's found explicitly in the New Testament in Paul, but in church history it comes out 
um, in Augustine very clearly as the result of his battles with the, the Pelagians. And then it comes back to the fore with Martin Luther and John Calvin. The medieval church had drifted into sort of a compromise with Pelagianism called semi-Pelagianism. And then in the Reformation, it was a restoration of full-bore Augustinianism. Full, you know, God predestines all things. God um, controls all things. Bolsec uh, challenged the doctrine of predestination in Geneva and had a series of confrontations with Calvin over uh, this doctrinal issue. And as a result of that, Bolsec was exiled from the city of Geneva. So that's a, an example of what, what, what a doctrinal dispute over that sort of issue would result in. It resulted in Bolsec's um, exile. Another enemy of um, another enemy of Calvin was a guy named Castilio um, and he he came to Geneva and was for a time the uh, the headmaster of the school there the Genevan Academy uh, he was adept in languages and so forth but uh, funds were tight uh, te- the teacher at the private Christian school was underpaid nothing ever changes right and so Castilio uh, was a part-time pastor at a nearby church and he wanted to become a full-time minister because he couldn't make ends meet. And uh, he had a run-in with Calvin because, and this is an interesting controversy, he had a run-in with Calvin because Castilio maintained that, that the Song of Solomon in the Bible ought not to be in the Bible because it was full of the the notebook musings of Solomon the pervert. Right? Um so how this how this perverted book ever got into the Bible, we'll never know, said Castilio, and wanted to, the Song of Solomon to be taken out. And Calvin opposed his ordination as a minister because he wanted 65 books in the Bible instead of 66 uh, books in the Bible. And Castilio wound up leaving uh, uh, Geneva as well. Now, that's those are some of the famous run-ins that Calvin had. Caroli... Um, with uh, uh, the Peronists on the city council and Bethelier, one of the Peronists, Michael Servetus, um, Bolsec, and Castilio. Now, here's the, here's the uh, an odd quirk. Um, wh- how do you account for this? You know, how how do you account for the the fact that many of the things that we take for granted, one of them being liberty of conscience, was so utterly and completely absent from the European mind at that time. And it pretty much was. There, there were people who objected to the burning of Servetus and objected to this sort of thing, but oftentimes the objection, objections that were raised to persecutions were objections based on whose ox was being gored. It was not, it was not an objection sort of principally that we ought not to do this ac- uh, across the board. Um, and so there were people who attacked Calvin for the execution of Servetus, but for the most part... Uh, it solidified Calvin's position in in European popular opinion. I, you know, I guess Calvin isn't a Trinitarian heretic himself because Servetus was executed in, in Geneva. How is it that... Um, well, let me back up for another... Uh, it would not be proper to say that John Calvin is the father of a denomination uh, the way... Um, Martin Luther was the father of a denomination, the Lutherans, or 
John Wesley was the father of the Methodists and so on. These were great religious leaders and they had a great impact, but they wound up being, in essence, fathers of, um, of churches, fathers of movements within the church. John Calvin um, is not really a father of a church or a denomination at all. John Calvin, I think it could be fairly said, is the father of a civilization. Uh, John Calvin's impact was far broader than simply ecclesiastical. And here's one of the weird things about it. In wherever, uh, if, if you look at the countries where the doctrine of liberty of conscience first took root and flourished and then got established, um, Holland, England, by a, a hundred years after Calvin, the diehard Calvinist document, the Westminster Confession, has an entire chapter on liberty of conscience. Liberty of conscience. God alone is Lord of the conscience. So within a hundred years of uh, Calvin's life, the idea of liberty of conscience has taken root and is um, uh, popularized by um, popularized and made palatable by John Locke, who was not a Calvinist, but who was heavily influenced um, by the by the Calvinists, his John Locke's father was a friend of Samuel Rutherford, one of the um, one of the Scottish commissioners to the Westminster Assembly. Now, if you look at those places where the idea of liberty of conscience and uh, principled toleration, which is different than apathetic toleration, you know, relativistic toleration, principled toleration. Virtually every country where it first appears and takes root and, and where we have a long tradition of it are those countries that have a Calvinist heritage. And you say, huh, well, how, how did that happen? And how did that happen particularly when it didn't seem to be a principle that, that Calvin himself would have recognized, right? You know, Calvin himself didn't recognize it, but it appears that some of the principles that he laid down led inexorably to, um, to this doctrine. And we've already noted one of them. Calvin was fighting for the independence of the church from the state. There are three basic views that you can take of church-state relations. One of them is the Roman Catholic view, where the church is over the state. The second is the Erastian view, which is that the state is over the church. And the third is the sphere sovereignty view, which was articulated by Calvin during this battle with the little council, saying that uh, you have a separation between the government of the church and the government of the state. Sphere sovereignty. So Calvin is the one who first began articulating the doctrine of independence of church government and state government. Now, for a thousand years before this, right, from over a thousand years, from Constantine down, that was a bizarre concept, right? You just, they didn't have any, and before that, they didn't have any notion of separation of church and state either, but it was just uh, uh, a union between pagan religion and state. So uh, Constantine was the Pontifex Maximus, the high priest of the pagan religion, before he became a Christian. And so what happened, you had this, uh, from prior to Calvin's Geneva, you had millennia of people saying the church and state belong together. They're all, it's all part of the people in charge. The people in charge just run things, right? Well, it was Calvin and people like him, but Calvin was the most forceful exponent of it, where he said, no, you have to separate the civil affairs, temporal affairs, from 
um, uh, from ecclesiastical affairs, and and his job was on the line, his life was on the line, really, uh, in this this battle with the Genevan authorities. And it was not not a simple one. Now, Calvin, I don't think Calvin saw all the ramifications of what that would do, but he was fighting for it in the in the middle of this trial with uh, for over Servetus. And in Scotland, and in England, and in the, in, in the United States, uh, in all these places where there's a heavy Calvinist heritage, the doctrine of liberty of conscience took deep root. It makes sense to us. And I would say, and this is going to sound funny, but I would say it makes sense to us because it didn't make complete sense to John Calvin, even though he was in many ways the father of this idea of liberty of conscience. Let, um, let me give you another illustration of this. I'm not, in, I'm not uh, agitating for us uh, to run around burning witches either, but I just want to make a, a, an observation of the irony of some of these things. If I say to you, witch trials, what city do you think of? Salem, right? Salem, Massachusetts. And 20-some and people were tried... Um, if I might add, heinously tried, wickedly tried, uh, you know, evil, evil, evil. What was, what was done there was evil, evil, evil. And, did you know this, was suppressed by the Puritan ministers of New England? Did you know that part? Why, no, I, I hadn't heard that part. Um, what had happened was, the, uh, Massachusetts charter ran out, and they didn't have a civil authority. Right? They, their papers expired. They didn't. They didn't have a governor. They didn't have a. They didn't have anybody in charge, and so somebody from Massachusetts went back to England to get their papers stamped, to get the charter going again, so they could have a civil government. So Massachusetts was in this brief period of anarchy with no governor, no authority, no nothing. Right. During this time, this religious hysteria breaks out in Salem, and a couple of local. Um, uh, at least one local Puritan minister begins uh, agitating for the witch trials, and these people are, a number of them are tried and executed, and there was no civil authority to suppress it. There was no way to stop it from happening. And when the guy shows back up from England with the papers, you know, so we have civil government again, all, all the Puritan England, ministers of New England who were distressed at what was happening in Salem petitioned the new governor and had him suppress the trials, which he immediately did. So we should all learn about how the, how the Puritans ended the witch trials in Salem, but that's not what we learn. What we learn is how those evil Puritans um, centuries ago ran around burning witches and that's all they did all day long. Um, the problem with this is, is that, and, and I'm not trying to minimize the horrific evil of kill, killing these uh, witches with uh, these mockery of you know, spectral evidence and all sorts of dumb stuff um, allowed um, in the trial, which Cotton Mather opposed and so on. But you don't hear about that either. The issue is, this was the last gasp, right, in Western civilization, the Salem witch trials were the last gasp of a practice of burning witches that had gone on for century upon century upon century throughout medieval Europe and involved tens of thousands of witches. I mean, tens of thousands of witches were just routinely burned right, throughout the history of medieval Europe. It happened like clockwork. It happened all the time. And then the last people who did it, 
uh, and had kind of a guilty conscience about doing it, and their fellows around them said, what are you doing, and slapped them down. They're the ones who get blamed for everything. It's the same sort of thing with this lack of toleration. Geneva, Calvin's Geneva, I want to argue, was the birthplace of principled toleration. Right? And it was a long, hard, arduous birth. It was difficult, and it was messy. And Calvin screwed up, and uh, the, the, the Genevan authorities screwed up. They, I don't think they, they saw um, clearly what, what they were doing, but part of the reason they didn't see clearly what they were doing is because for centuries prior to this idea, the idea of religious toleration was a non-existent concept. Nobody had ever thought of it, right? It, it would be like you, um, if, if you had shown up preaching the kind of separation of church and state that we enjoy now, and liberty of conscience and that sort of thing, imagine yourself trying to explain it to the Pope in, th in 1350. He, not only would he oppose you, he would have no categories for understanding you. That's the issue. He would have no categories for understanding you. And in Calvin's Geneva, we began to develop the categories for understanding this, which is why the critique is possible. Right? That's why the critique is possible. A um, hundred years before, people were being executed in Geneva too. Right? They were being executed in Geneva a hundred years prior to that, but we don't hear about it because there was not the structure, uh, there was not the structure for that kind of uh, critique. All right. Um, there are other things to, to be said, but I'd like to leave some time for questions. Yes and no. Yes, yes and no. Let me put it this way. Uh, the question was, we talk a lot about going back to Calvin's Geneva as a good place to, to, to live. Uh, between us girls, you couldn't pay me to live there. Okay. okay. All right. All right. Uh, oh, you know, give me the screaming willies. I, you, you couldn't pay me to live there. At the same time, I want to acknowledge our enormous debt to that place. That, in other words, there are things that proceed. Uh, our, our rights, our liberties were dearly bought, and the struggles that they went through helped create what we have. It's the same sort of thing as. Uh, so if you're saying, do I view the Reformation as some golden age? Uh, absolutely not. It was a it was a mess. I did I didn't mention a few years after Servetus's trial, there were uh, riots in Geneva. There were you know mayhem in the streets. Ami Perrin, the, one of the guys, the the syndic was the uh, leader of the council, and there had been a new syndic elected. And during the riots, Ami Perrin grabbed the the baton of authority, and it was seen as a coup d'etat, and there was a crackdown on the Perennists and Berthelier, and they were routed. Some of them fled, and, and others of them were executed. But at the time, it was a city-state sort of thing, and so the issue was treason and the survival of the city and you know all of those issues. It was a tumultuous time. So many times people talk about, um, well, I'd like, uh, we should build a New, New Testament church. And I could say, so you want one where... A guy's living with his stepmother, and you you want one where people are getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, and you want, uh, you know, why would you want a New Testament church? Well, I, I certainly don't. But if you mean we want a, a testament, New Testament church in the sense of the principles that have been laid down and given to us in the New Testament, and that it's our responsibility to flesh out, yes, I do. And in the same way, I would like to say I've, I've referred to going to Geneva rather than Rome. And that's just shorthand for I became a Calvinist rather than a Catholic. But 
I don't want to to go into a reenactor mode and reproduce here um, in, in our day and age what was going on in Geneva. I don't think it's possible in the first place, and if it were possible, I wouldn't want to do it. I believe that we should stand on their shoulders. I think we can see farther than they did. We can, we're farther down the road. We can take the inheritance they've given us, thank God for it, and not disparage their memory. You'd be truly grateful um, uh, for them. I'm, I am truly grateful for John Calvin. I think he was a, a great servant of God. But I think he had blind spots, and some of the reason, one of the reasons I think we can see his blind spots is because of his contribution. The question is, biblically speaking, why did Calvin go uh, after Servetus? Um, he, this is a, this is the question when it comes up, when it basically comes down to the Ten Commandments. The debate is, do we enforce by civil penalties the first table of the law? If you look at the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments all have to do with our duties toward God, and the last six commandments have to do with our duties toward our neighbor. Even our secular government today enforces um, much of the second table of the law. You're not allowed to... Um, adultery is against the law, even if it's not enforced. Theft is against the law. Uh, murder is against the law. Those are all second table items. When I was a boy, certain items in the first table were enforced here in America. There was Sabbath legislation. Um, when I was in the Navy, not when I was a boy, when I was in the Navy in, uh, in the 1970s in Virginia, there was a fight there over the blue laws. The blue laws in, entailed Sabbath, um, Sabbath laws where you, you couldn't have your store open on the Lord's Day if you were a department store. You had, you had to close. And so, uh, and that was just within living memory, and that's part of the first table of the, the law. Well, what about the prohibition of idolatry? You know, the, um, graven images, um, having no other gods before God, taking the name of the Lord in vain. Michael Servetus called the doctrine of the Trinity a three-headed Cerberus, the, the dog from hell, right? So he, he was a blasphemer and a provocateur, as I, I said. So he, yeah, he was blaspheming, and he was... Um, he was breaking the third commandment. Now, does do the first, no other gods before me, um, no graven images, and not taking the name of the Lord in vain. Should those commandments be enforced by the civil authority? Should there be any criminal penalties attached to it? Well, the, the, the glib answer that people give nowadays is, no, of course not. Right? Just, no, of course not. Uh, but it's not that simple as I think Calvin would have instructed us. And, and we're seeing it now. In, parts, in, in Canada, they're debating whether or not uh, Muslim Sharia law should be allowed um, uh, in certain parts of Canada. How about, uh, what about in France? What about, uh, you know, um, Germany is rapidly turning into Germanistan. And, and, and what do we do? when mosques are everywhere and people say in a fine democratic fashion we want all the women to wrap up in a you know now now what do we do well you can't um, secularism mere secularism saying we just don't do that here is anemic and cannot resist uh, the onslaught of something like fundamentalist Islam I think Calvin would have told us that no you have to have some there has to be some form of 
uh, civil recognition of um, the authority of God and Christ in society. You have to have that, and I agree with that. And that means that the civil authority has to enforce some aspects of the first table of the law. And this, and that reminds me of the thing I need to uh, say. Why I, I've said I think the executing Servetus, as opposed to banishing him or you know giving him a free bus ticket, you know, because he was blaspheming, and you can't do that here. I think would have been far uh, wiser. Um, why was it a blunder? Well, I think it was a blunder because um, the execution of Servetus has served to obscure all the important principles that are at stake in this. All law is inherently religious. Right? All law is inherently religious. We have blasphemy laws today. We call them hate crimes. We don't call them blasphemy laws. But every society has an orthodoxy. Every society has a God. And every society prohibits blasphemy of the God. Right? The, the current God is Demos, the people, and you can't blaspheme Demos, the people. You, you may not do it. And, and if you do it, in our society, you're forced to take uh, re-education sensitivity classes. There are things that you could, there are things that each one of you could go out in front of the U of I library, stand on that little uh, wall, concrete wall there, and say, just and all you'd have to be doing is talking, and you would find yourself in um, uh, compulsive uh, sensitivity classes, right? But that's because we have blasphemy laws. Just like all societies have blasphemy laws. It's just what you blaspheme, right? So I think that, and a Christian society is no different. A Christian society cannot allow the fundamental authority, the source of all law, to be blasphemed and railed against and that sort of thing. But whether or not, but when you kill someone like Servetus for doing that, in my mind, it's killing ants with a baseball bat. You're... You're way overreacting, and you're setting yourself up for the necessary authority of God in Christ to be challenged. Because people then say, "Look, you know, you're no different. You know, you guys are no different than the medieval papacy. You're you're no different. You, you know, you're, you're you provide great martyrs when you're being persecuted, and as soon as you get in charge, you start persecuting other people. That charge sticks. So I think we have to be very careful um, before we before we kill somebody." Um, especially in the name of God, we have to be very careful that we're doing the right thing. And I, I don't think that they were careful enough. Yeah. Uh, the question is, when you have a church member who commits a capital crime, that, that sort of thing, uh, and, and they're excommunicated, what do you do? Um, and the, the, as a pastor, this is not a hypothetical thing for me. I've... Um, at what point do you cooperate with the cops? At what point do you call the cops? Um, for example, if if I found out in the, course of, in the course of pastoral counseling that there was a husband in our church beating up his wife, uh, not only would he be disciplined and uh, suspended from the table and uh, and excommunicated if he was not repentant, I would also call the police. You know, say so you you may not do this because it's a it's not just a sin; it's also a crime. Covetousness is a sin, but not a crime. Lust is a sin, but not a crime. Murder is a sin and a crime, right? And this distinction, the distinction between sins and crimes, I think, is a fundamental one in free societies, right? Because as soon as you mush sin and crime together, what what you find yourself with is an inability of the of the magistrate to 
to realize he is not God. So yes, and I have. Um, uh, there, there are places where I would say the police have authority in this particular instance, and I do not. Um, and so I would either call the police or have the person who confessed his crime to me uh, call the police, turn himself in, whatever is necessary. Well, um, if we leave aside for a moment the debate on the first table of the law, okay, I would say just exegetically... Um, it's not enough. Exegetically, it would be something in, that the Bible prohibits for which a civil penalty is also attached. Okay, so if, there's a, if the Bible says, not only is that bad to do, but if someone does that bad thing, the civil magistrate may do this to him, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, that sort of thing. So um, just to give you a simple illustration, uh, in Moses' Israel... Okay, in Moses' Israel, it would not have been a crime to get falling down drunk. There's no you you go through the Mosaic Code. There's nothing in the Mosaic Code that prohibits drunkenness anywhere. Okay, so I would say drunkenness ought not to be a crime. Now, if you get drunk and you go downtown and shoot out the streetlights, that's a crime. But it's a crime whether you're drunk or sober. And what I would say is that drunkenness ought not to be allowed as a defense. So if someone is guilty of vehicular manslaughter because they were drunk, they ought to be tried for vehicular manslaughter, and they ought not to be allowed to defend themselves with the drunkenness. The drunkenness is the sin and is, civilly speaking, an allowable sin. But when you do things that the Bible tells us penalties ought to be exacted, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, that, that sort of thing, then I would say the penalty should be exacted. But Americans are a censorious, pharisaical lot. And all you have to do is get us to disapprove of something, right? And then in the next breath, we say, there ought to be a law, right? Do you disapprove of refined sugar? There ought to be a law. Do you disapprove of uh, boys smoking cigarettes behind the barn? There ought to be a law. And there is. There's a little thing... Um, you know, in storage, you can't sell tobacco to minors. Now, I would I would say, yeah, it's a sin to sell tobacco to minors. Should it be a crime? No. These people have parents. You know, don't don't. Uh, we ought not to multiply criminal legislation because I think we're trying to restrict people's uh, freedom beyond what the Bible allows us to do. And fundamentally, the Bible gives us ten commandments, and not. You look at the Idaho Code, it's something like this, how many books, and God gives us a list of ten things. And I would, I would like us to um, keep it to roughly that. Okay? Let's thank the Lord. Father, thank you for our time together tonight. I pray you watch over us as we think about these things and meditate on them. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the All of Christ for All of Life podcast.